Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. Coming up, the residents of Flint, Michigan, are in the midst of a water crisis. We'll get an update and find out what we can learn about our water supply here in Connecticut from this story. But first, we'll get an update on our state's other major utility systems from Arthur House, chairman of the Public Utilities Regulatory Authority. If you've got questions about gas and electric, grids and pipelines, rates and regulation, join our conversation, 860-275-7266. Again, it's 860-275-7266. You can comment on our website, wnpr.org slash where we live, and you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. I want to welcome uh, Art House back to the program. Thanks so much for being here. I appreciate it. It's great to be here. Also joining us in studio is uh, Luther Termel, who's a staff writer for the New Haven Register, who's been covering a story that we want to start with. And Luther, welcome back to the show. Thank you, John. Last month, Connecticut regulators approved the $3 billion merger of a Spanish firm called Iberdrola and New Haven-based UIL Holdings. The news came just a couple weeks after the Public Utilities uh, Regulatory Authority issued a draft decision that okayed the deal. Um, Maybe, Luther, you can just give us a, a little bit of a thumbnail sketch of what exactly this means. Well, it means that uh, uh, Iberdrola would be the owner of United Illuminating, Southern Connecticut Gas, and Connecticut Natural Gas, as well as a uh, Western Massachusetts utility, Berkshire Gas. Um, th- one of the things that makes this interesting is at one point a, a, a forerunner, a predecessor of uh, Iberdrola Energy East owned these natural gas utilities that UIL had, and then they sold them to UIL, and now they're essentially getting them back. So, And that sort of played, in, uh, to some extent, to some of the uh, decision-making process, I would imagine, uh, for the uh, pure commissioners. And, and, and I'll be asking Art House in just a moment about this, these decisions. Uh, what do you think that this might mean for ratepayers? I mean, obviously, uh, whenever there's a, a big change in leadership of any major corporation, certainly a utility, it could be a big deal for ratepayers, or it might not mean that much. What, what, do, you, what do you think? Well, I mean, within the the final decision, within the final ruling, there's uh, some freezes and some protections for a a certain period of time. And then uh, basically it it goes back to the normal process where uh, they go before the Pura and have to prove why they would need a rate increase. But there is a little protection for a while as part of the uh, decision. So maybe you can talk us through the decision that, that you folks made, Art House, when uh, when these two companies were talking about coming together. It, it wasn't initially uh, approved. Now the approval uh, means there's this new company, Avon Grid, which is going to be working in the southern part of the state. Take us through the process that you had to go through. Sure, uh, it's it's in the law, Connecticut Law 16-47, 16-22. Uh, there are criteria that have to be met if uh, there's going to be a change of control of a public utility. And it is the responsibility of the company to come to Pura and make the case that it has the financial, technological, and managerial uh, suitability to serve Connecticut. Um, It has to show that it will provide safe, adequate, reliable service and that the transfer of assets is in the public interest. And uh, what happened the the first time round uh, was the Pura did not think that they'd met that criteria. 
Uh, you start with the fact that UIL is a sound, well-managed company. This is not like a troubled bank where you have to find a successor. They were doing just fine. And the question was, what would they be like if this international company took control? We found they did not meet that criteria. And then if you'd like, I can get into how they did the second time. But in June, we turned them down. They resubmitted, and uh, we reconsidered. And, and when when they resubmitted, what changed? What changed in their presentation? What changed about uh, what they said they were going to do that made you think, okay, maybe this merger might work? Sure. Um, first of all, Iberdrola, Iberdrola is a, it's a very large company with considerable financial resources and extensive technical capabilities. Um, what we were concerned about last June was the uh, – the protection of UIL's financial strength and its managerial competence. We did not want uh, vicissitudes, changes, say, in Brazil or Spain or some other country in which Iberdrola was operating uh, to enable them to draw on the financial strength or the managerial talent of UIL. So they did uh, – let me just put them in three categories. One is they created ring fencing, which we called for, which shields the financial integrity of UIL from – uh, problems elsewhere in the in, in the company or elsewhere in the world. Secondly, there were guarantees regarding the integrity of uh, United Illuminating's management, uh, levels of employment in Connecticut, jobs to be created, retention of a headquarters here in Connecticut. And third, there were a bunch of financial factors, including rate freezes and credits. Um, there was a promise or a guarantee, I should say, to uh, clean up English Station, which is uh, a, a polluted facility in uh, in the harbor of New Haven, uh, and also contributions to renewable energy. So uh, it was a split decision, I should say. Uh, two of the commissioners, uh, I was one of them, uh, thought they had met the criteria. One of the commissioners thought that they had not. But for those three main reasons, uh, two commissioners thought that they had met the criteria and uh, approved the uh, change of assets. The, this split decision, Luther, is somewhat unusual uh, for, for Pure to do. Yeah, that's true. Um, and... Uh, the it shows, I think, the integrity of Pura as an entity. I mean, a lot of times I get calls from the public saying, well, you know, they're regulators, but they don't really regulate. And what people don't understand is that Pura operates as a quasi-judicial agency that they can't – the only things that they can take into account are testimony that's given under oath. So it's hard, and I know that there's probably some concern about – Potential litigation from companies that uh, don't get what they want, to be to put it bluntly. Uh, but you know, in this particular case, I with the split decision, I, it shows that you know regulators are regulating, and some of them agree, and some of them don't. Well, I, and I, maybe I won't ask uh, Art House to uh, to go through what his colleague who uh, dissented uh, on on this vote might might have said. But Luther, what was in this dissent? The, in the final decision, you're yeah, talking about. Yeah, in the final decision. I mean, what what, what were the reasons why uh, Commissioner Karen, I believe, who decided not to vote for this, what 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 did he say? Well, in the in the in the minority decision that was issued, I, I think he talked about he was concerned about the uh, potential still, even with the ring fencing that Art talked about, of the of Iberdrola's larger international holdings, the problems there creating a problem for UIL. Um, I also think, and I haven't talked to Michael Karen in a while, but my sense was that because these companies had been owned by Energy East, which, as I said before, is a sort of a forerunner of Iberdrola, 
Um, I don't know that he was particularly impressed by the way they managed the companies before they sold them to UIL. And now they're buying them back, essentially. And even though Jim Torgerson, who's the CEO of UIL Holdings, uh, uh, will be doing the day-to-day managing, uh, I think uh, Commissioner Karen was concerned about that. Um, actually, on the phone, uh, Jim Torgerson is uh, giving us a call. He's the CEO now of Avangrid. Uh, Jim, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for calling in. I, I, I'm not sure if you heard what Luther was was just talking about, about some of the concerns uh, that were expressed by Commissioner Karen uh, in, in the process of, of this uh, approval uh, about the ways in which some of these companies were run by Iberdrole in the past. Uh, I heard a little bit of it, yeah, and I think – some of the concerns when you had Energy East owning the companies, as I think even the people here would say that Energy East was pretty much an abrasive company, that uh, they didn't uh, necessarily work well with the regulators, with the policymakers, or with customers for that matter. And uh, I think Ibadrola, when they took them over, it has a far different approach. But then Ibadrola was looking at um, – maintaining their balance sheet and they had other projects they wanted to look at so then in 2010 they sold those um, gas companies to uil and we were very happy to buy them and then we got to know the people from Ibadrola through that transaction and found them to be good people very good operators of utility systems worldwide and uh, we worked out a transaction with them that we went through and got the approval ultimately and commissioner karen did dissent on that and he had his reasons and I think uh, he was concerned about um, UIL being actually having been a very well-run company. He didn't see the need for the change. Is the way I read most of what he was saying. Okay, so it's a very well. I mean, this is I think the thing that a lot of listeners, especially those who are customers of United Illuminating in the past, might might be asking, Jim. It was a really well-run company. So why did this change need to happen? I mean, why why is this better for Connecticut ratepayers for Connecticut? Uh, electric users, et cetera, than, than what we had before? Sure, sure. It's a good question. Um, actually, being part of a much larger company is a great benefit. It gives us greater stability. We have a much better balance sheet now. UIL had, uh, you know, UI itself had 50% debt. The company that we have now with uh, Avon Grid, we have less than 30% debt for the entire company. So it gives us much more flexibility, better balance sheet. And then the other things, you see, we get the best practices from eBadrola worldwide. They operate in a number of countries, and they have 32 million customers worldwide. So we can leverage the best practices and hopefully put them in place for our customers. The other part of it, and I think you mentioned it already, there were customer, Commissioner House, Chairman House did. We had uh, customer credits. We had, we're committing to 150 hires in the Connecticut area. We're keeping our Connecticut presence. We have the ring fencing involvement. We're going to keep our community involvement and contributions that we've had all along and actually even up some of those a little bit. And I think all, and then cleaning up English Station was all part of that. So when you put the whole package together, you look at it, we are going to be a better company than we were because we'll have more capabilities. We'll be able to invest in things that we couldn't before. Well, For example, I, yeah, well, distributed generation, for one. I, I just want to ask uh, Art House about that. So, and this isn't uh, unique to utility mergers. This essentially happens every time that there's a merger of two companies. Um, there's a smaller company that is now part of a larger company, and when you ask the 
the people from that now larger company what the benefits are. They say, well, economies of scale, we're able to uh, utilize all these great mines that we have all over the world, et cetera, et cetera. But a lot of the people on the ground always worry about the control being further away from the place where you actually do business. And this has happened certainly in utility mergers that you've dealt with in the past here in Connecticut, and it's it's happening again. To, to this point, Art House, of, of it's a better company now that it's much, much bigger and part of this multinational conglomerate. I mean, what do you broadly say to that sort of statement? Well, what, what we say is, did they meet the criteria of the law? Uh, you may be right. Uh, I made the point during the hearing that in 5, 10, 15 years, you have a brand new company of control, Iberdrola. Uh, what is their corporate culture? Uh, what kind of people are they going to hire and promote? What will their interest in the community will be? And that's very hard to predict. But this gets to the core of what Purit does. This stuff is really, really complicated. Engineering, finance, law, public policy. We had months of hearing. We had just stacks of documents coming in. We had a lot of controversy. And uh, we have a very talented staff at Pure. I must say. I mean, uh, a small staff who has to go full bore to take all this apart. And uh, the, uh, the Commissioner Betkoski and I in, ended up thinking it was in the public interest. Uh, Commissioner Karen, who's really smart and really does his homework and reads everything, came out the other way. But full respect among the three of us. It was a, the, the three of us really were pleased with this decision because each commissioner got to weigh in the way he thought about it. And to what Mr. Torgerson is saying, uh, it made sense in the sense it met the law. That's as far as we go. Do the facts meet the law? Did they do what they had to do to, re- to receive our approval? Luther, do you have something? Well, no, I was going to add, I think one of the things that sort of might get glossed over in all of this, I mean, because the certainly the uh, credits and the freezes of rates affect the, the larger population of consumers of uh, all the UIL utilities, but English Station and in the original decision, actually before the original decision was made, Pura's commissioners said that they didn't have the technical capability to require or, or assess whether the cleanup of English stations should be part of the decision. Uh, they re- rejected the draft decision and then started the, the hearings on the uh, the new application. And then in the fall... Uh, the Attorney General's Office and uh, DEEP negotiated an agreement that uh, Iberdrola and UIL would clean up English Station, um, which was uh, decommissioned in the early 1990s. Uh, It sits on an island in the middle of the Mill River near New Haven Harbor, and the whole island that it sits on is loaded with carcinogens. And so it was critical, I think, for the city of New Haven to get that cleaned up, and to be quite candid, I don't. Th- uh, Jim will, I know, disagree with me on this, but I think that UIL. Uh, I mean, they, they negotiated in good faith, but they hadn't been able to come to a decision to clean it up, and so uh, having this be in the final decision, and it was uh, contingent on the final decision being approved, uh, was is crit- critical for New Haven. They're going to spend up to thirty million dollars. Uh, to clean it up, and that's terrific news for New Haven. Uh, Jim, quickly, do you have a, a comment on what Luther just said? Well, I think we came to the agreement to clean it up, and there had been litigation with the, uh for several years now about who was responsible, because keep in mind, we sold that power plant 15 years ago to some other people, and uh, there were um, 
they never ended up running it, and then so it had to come back uh, to us in some respects. But there were other parties that were involved too. So it would have taken a long time to get that totally cleaned up, and I think this accelerates the process. So it is a good benefit to the city of New Haven and to the state, you know, overall. Do you want to jump in? Yeah, just I, I would simply add the Office of uh, Consumer Counsel is also part of those negotiations. It was all sec- it was all secondary to me as far as I was concerned. What I wanted to know was, did this resulting entity have the financial, technological, and managerial suitability to serve Connecticut? Money, you spend it. In five years, ten years, whatever, it's gone. What is the – what's left mm-hmm. and what's there to serve the people of Connecticut? So the, the, the financial, technological, and managerial suitability – Meeting that criteria trumped everything else for me. We're going to have to take a break, and I want to thank James Storgerson, the CEO of Avangrid uh, Incorporated, for calling us up. Uh, James, thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate it. Oh, thank you. And, and I want to thank uh, Luther Termel, who's a, a reporter, staff writer for the New Haven Register, who's been covering the story. Uh, Luther, thank you so much. Good to see you. Thank you, John. When we come back, we're going to take some of your questions for Art House. He's uh, chairman of the Public Utilities Regulatory Authority. A lot to, to talk about around gas and electric. We'll be talking about our water supply coming up later on in the program. You can join us at 860-275-7266 or email us where we live at WNPR.org. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankoski. I should let you know that in just uh, two weeks from now, thereabouts, on January 19th, it's our second-ever Wheelhouse Uncensored event. We'll be doing it live at the Tavern in downtown New Haven. We're going to be talking about the 2016 presidential election. We'll have some of our Wheelhouse regulars there, of course, me and Colin McEnroe. It's always a fun evening, and if you want to find out more information about this, go to our Facebook page at Where We Live. Today we're talking about... Uh, Connecticut's Utilities with uh, Chairman of the Public Utilities Regulatory Authority, Art House. He's going to take some of your calls and questions in a moment at 860-275-7266. There's a lot to talk about between wind farms and natural gas expansion pipelines, that sort of thing. First, I just want to get back to to something on the first topic that we covered. Um, When you and the other chairman vote on something like a big utility merger, there's this there's this system that's unlike a lot of other systems that we have here. You've been on the program explaining this in the past, but I just want to make sure our listeners understand that when we talk about a vote in favor of a merger like the one we were talking about that has a dissenting voice, what exactly is the process here? How many people are voting, and, and how do you folks talk and negotiate? Yeah, I'm glad you asked because it changed during the past year, thanks to the General Assembly. Uh, up until last year, um, you, well, it started, we used to have five commissioners, and the law was that uh, a majority of the commissioners could not meet to discuss a case. Uh, it was illegal. So when they took us down to three commissioners, that meant that no two commissioners to get could get together to talk about a docket, which was ridiculous because, um, example, we have one of the nation's foremost experts on water things, Jack Bitkoski. If I had a water case and I came in, I couldn't go into him and say, I got a water case. What should I know? What do you think of the primary things? And, and, and the reason for that original prohibition was why? Um, probably to ke- make sure that you didn't have a decision uh, w- which excluded certain commissioners okay. b- being made. Uh, what you, the Supreme Court of the United States, Supreme Court of Connecticut, the justices can get together and can debate things. And since it's changed, we've had, frankly, a much better system. The people are served. We save a lot of time. The the commissioners can get together with staff. What's your problem with this? These are the three things I think are most important in this case. We debate it. 
And, of course, one of the questions we'd have in the media is you guys get together just over dinner and start talking about this stuff. Is it a public meeting? I mean, should we be able to get the minutes? Should we be able to sit in and listen, record it? Well, the irony is that in my first three years there, there was never a dissent. Since we have had this new law, there have been two major dissents. And so the debate is is absolutely critical. But instead of sending a staffer in saying, what do you think about point number two? The commissioner tells the staffer, he comes to me and says, here's what he says he thinks. We get together. We've saved countless hours of time. And there is respect for uh, the views of all the commissioners. And in the end, they vote. They're like judges. They come down with their decision. But But should it be a more public process? I mean, should we get behind the scenes in how you make the decisions and how the deals are made and how you decide, yes, we're going to go ahead, head on this. Well, no more than you should be in the, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the room of the Supreme Court judges are saying, why do you hold that view? I understand this merit. How about the second and the third? How about this? How about that? But, but there are open court proceedings for the, for the Supreme Court. And, and, and we have them, too. We have yep. oral arguments in which all of that, can, someone can come in, make, a, make, a, make an oral argument for a, for a draft decision. They can weigh in. So, yes, it is, it is quite transparent, uh, and everyone gets a chance to weigh in on our decisions. The point is that now we can challenge each other. We can learn more. Our decisions are far more knowledgeable, more focused, uh, and I think of great, much higher quality because the commissioners can talk to each other. Um, and if you have any questions about this process as well, 860-275-7266. Dean has called from East Haddam. Before we get to some of the other issues, let's go to Dean's phone call. Hi, Dean. Go ahead. Hello. Good morning. Hi. Good morning. What's up? Good morning, Dean. Um, good morning. Uh, I'm calling because uh, I, I had a little change of heart for, from what I uh, spoke to the screener about. Okay. I'd like to know uh, who is the uh, Pura accountable to? Because uh, as a ratepayer of uh, Eversource Energy, it, it seems to me that, uh, and maybe I'm being a little crass about this, but it seems to me that they throw money at an issue and it disappears. Uh, case in point, all the closures of the buildings, and uh, we're not getting any increased service. They outsource jobs. Uh, the credit all the credit calls go to South Carolina and I think Indiana, maybe. And uh, meanwhile, we've got uh, contractors showing up. I don't know who these people are. And when you say the closures of the buildings, what buildings do you mean, Dean? Uh, the let's see, Willimantic, Middletown, Greenwich, uh, Simsbury. Uh, you know, Waterbury has has uh, has the it's in the crosshairs now. Mm. Well, uh, let, let me get some some comment from Art House, and I really appreciate your your question. Uh, two points. First of all, to whom are we accountable? We are nominated by the um, governor of Connecticut. We are approved by the General Assembly, and we have uh, different terms, staggered terms of about four years. So that is, we, that's to whom we are responsible. We're also responsible to the people of Connecticut for doing our work. On the specific case to which the, the, the gentleman, Dean, um, just referred, um, this is one of the classic controversies we have. Connecticut has high electric rates. We are always urged to do whatever we can to try to make the companies more efficient, uh, more cost-effective. Now, they have invented the cell phone. They've invented the computer. They have roving um, uh, equipment so that they can cut down on the use of certain facilities. Our job, what we're trying to do, is to see can they provide efficient, safe, effective service at less cost and thereby reduce their expenses and bring down electricity rates. So 
there are those who'd say, do anything you can to bring down electricity rates. We're paying too much. On the other hand, you'd have somebody say, yes, but not in my town or my backyard. Do, 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 do they bring down electricity rates um, in a way that is commensurate with the amount that they're able to shave savings in the way that our caller suggests? Well, all right, let me, let me amend what I said. They, they do cost control. And therefore, they uh, reduce the need to come in for a rate increase. Or when they come in for a rate increase, it will be for a lesser amount because their expenses are less. Mm. Um, And, Dean, thank you very much. We'll get some more phone calls in a moment. Uh, I want to get to natural gas uh, pipelines. Tennessee Gas has proposed installing a 24-inch transmission line in close proximity to an existing 16-inch line on MDC watershed property. Uh, The MDC board hasn't reached a decision on this proposal. Uh, it anticipates taking the matter into consideration by year end. Uh, explain Pura's role in, in something like this. John, whenever you get into an energy issue, I think it's the obligation of all the actors to say, here's what I think of it and here's what my role is. But there's always more than one actor. Mm-hmm. So just to be clear on this, um, this um, you got three – you got three kinds of, of transmission. you got a wellhead. We don't have gas uh, wells in Connecticut. You have transmission from wellhead to compression stations and interstate, which is ruled by the FERC, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, and then local distribution. Pura does local distribution from a compressor station to your home. Now, what's, what's happened here is that this is a pipeline uh, in, across MDC land in West Hartford, um, where there already is a 16-inch gas pipeline, and there's a proposal to lay a companion pipeline beside it. Who has the authority? It is the FERC, only the FERC, the, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. They will decide, not the, not the West Hartford Common Council, not the General Assembly, not Pura, no one else. They may all weigh in, the Attorney General, they may all weigh in, but the feds will make the decision on this. And it's a bit ironic because you have a lot of controversy when you go across virgin territory. There's a proposal to put a gas pipeline across the Hudson River and bring it into the Berkshires in Massachusetts Mm -hmm. because New England needs natural gas. Well, when you're going through land that doesn't have a pipeline, there's obvious controversy. There's usually much less controversy when you put a pipeline beside a pipeline that already exists. I mean, years ago, you never heard about this pipeline up in MDC land in West Hartford uh, because it was already there. And what they're saying is we're going to put one right beside it. That's what the proposal is, and the decider will be the FERC. Um, Is that the right way to do it? I mean, should they be the decider? Is that the thing that makes the most sense for the people of Connecticut, West Hartford, New England? Well, it's federal law. <laughs> so, I mean, you can argue that that's what the federal the federal law should not be the federal law, but it is, and it and it it rules. Um, now, should FERC decide to do it to uh, construct the pipeline, uh, Puro will get involved again. We are the Connecticut Interstate Agency for an organization called FEMSA, another, another acronym. It's the <laughs> Pipeline and Hazardous Materials Safety Administration of the U.S. Department of Transportation. A pipeline is transportation, and uh, we will inspect the work. We have a, a pipeline inspection and safety unit, which I'd be glad to discuss with you. Yeah. Uh, we already do that for the Algonquin Improvement uh, Market Project, and we would do it uh, for this project up in MDC territory for FEMSA if it were approved by FERC. So it's approved by FERC. And then you would uh, examine it for safety. For safety, and safety means uh, making sure it doesn't leak. Making sure what the welds are correct, that the standards of, of placement, that the gradient going up the hill is reinforced, that they, that they're doing it according to code. 
Mm. Uh, here, I want to listen to a little bit of tape here. Katie Dykes, who's a deputy commissioner for energy at the Connecticut uh, Department of Energy and Environmental Protection, was on a program talking about regional infrastructure siting. Um, let's listen. What you hear is that there's intense debate going on all around New England around siting of infrastructure. And I say that broadly, not just for gas pipelines, but also transmission lines uh, to bring in a large-scale hydropower, for example, is a huge debate going on in, in, uh, in New Hampshire, siting of wind farms up in northern Maine that are going to supply more renewables. What are the impacts on, on bats and avian uh, species? And, you know, we are making a huge transition to a clean energy economy, a clean energy future in New England, and that's requiring um, companies and regulators and, and the public to engage in very you know, important conversations about where are the best places to site uh, these projects and, and how should landowners be compensated and how can we ensure that uh, that these projects are going to come online in the time uh, that we need them in order to provide cheaper, cleaner, more reliable electricity and energy for, for our families and businesses. So, uh, again, that's Katie Dykes from the uh, Department of Energy and Environmental Protection uh, on, talking on our program. And she brings up an awful lot there. And, and I, I play that in part to you, Art House, because you know, we were talking about this kind of fractured system in which you oversee one part of a transmission line and the federal government oversees another part of it. And because it's so fractured, it feels often as though we're not able to tie together a real energy infrastructure plan that takes into account all of the various things we're trying to do, improve natural gas uh, I- efficiency, get it to more homes, make sure that our electric grid works at the same time, et cetera, et cetera. And she, I think she points at part of the, the fracture that we have there that we maybe need to heal. Yeah. Well, Katie's office is a couple down from mine. I must say she sounds great in that recording. And uh, I agree with her. I mean, yeah, there's, there's a lot going on. But she, the, what she referred to is quite broad, not only gas pipelines, but also things like uh, like wind farms. Uh, like uh, local distribution mains that, that go through, uh, which we're doing with a gas expansion project. So, yes, um, to be fair and, and also to be efficient and to save money, there are a lot of conflicting interests. And they do involve finance. They involve na- neighborhoods. They involve engineering. Um, and there are a lot of different actors. And I, I agree with her and with your point that it is complicated. And uh, in a dense state like Connecticut, where we are very proud of our quality of life and our neighborhoods. When these changes come, uh, they are controversial. Everyone wants cleaner, cheaper, more more reliable. I mean, they, they, but they are often in conflict. And sometimes cheaper means digging up the road in, in order to get there. Uh, and so you don't want the, your road in front of your house to be dug up. But you do want gas pipelines put through because you'll, your energy will be cheaper. I, I, I want to actually I want to move to renewable energy in just a moment. But since you mentioned that, it's, it gets at a little another one of my little bugaboos uh, about the state that I, I don't think I've gotten a chance to ask you about. So we talked to the governor and many other people about a big transportation plan, infrastructure that's going to rebuild highways and bridges, uh, new rail lines, etc. Meanwhile, there's another project. This Connecticut gig project is going to try to get fiber optics into more homes and really wire the state in a new way. And you're also in the business of making sure that people are digging stuff up, right? You're putting gas pipelines. Do you think that we have a, a system that will allow us to dig once really, really well and put down the road we need, the pipelines we need, and maybe even the fiber optics we need, as opposed to having three different systems trying to do all great things that are working against each other and spending a lot of money trying to do it. 
Oh, I think Dankowski ought to be director of public works. I, I mean, and I'm glad we can get into one of your bugaboos, John. I mean, no, well, if, look, there are several competing interests. One of the things, for example, we get into water, and this was just came up with the case in Enfield. If you're going to, if you're going to put a new road in. Uh, while the road is being dug up, let's look at the pipes. And, mm-hmm. and that now is an excellent time to replace water pipes going through that road rather than a year from now and dig up the road a second time. Um, there's not always adequate coordination. Why? Different companies. Uh, you have the public works department of a town. You have a gas company. You have a water company. And you may have a decision, for example, to, uh, to underground some electric wires. So the coordination is not always what it should be. A point well taken, and, and I think we, we could be doing more. But, in, but are, are you involved, as, as a commissioner of Pura, are you involved when, when the governor's talking about um, making a massive change to a roadway? Are you actually part of the conversation so that we can really think about digging this up and figuring out how we're going to run utility lines underneath it, too? Not usually, no. Uh, we, we don't get into road construction work. Yeah. How, how about how about when it comes to things like this gig project, when it comes to laying fiber optics? I mean, is, is Pure involved in that? I have not seen anything about the gig project either. No. Really? Yeah. Okay. Um, turning to uh, something that is out of my neck of the woods, um, last year Connecticut launched its first commercial wind farm just off of Route 44 in Colebrook, Connecticut. If you drive out uh, through my town, Winstead, and you drive up the hill to Norfolk, you, you see it. It's uh, right in your line of vision as you drive out Route 44, and it's kind of uh, one of the two towers is a very looming presence. Um, since then, some residents in the surrounding area have reported some adverse health effects. Joyce uh, Hemmingson, the president of Fairwind, Connecticut, is a citizens group that opposed the turbines construction, says low-frequency sound could be the culprit of some problems that people are having out there. There are some people who are very sensitive um, to this, but um, again, because these are so huge, I mean, the blades sweep, I think, over two acres with each rotation and they're up you know close to 500 feet you can't block that and these low frequency waves go right through your house so there's you know you can't put up blinds you can't insulate for that kind of thing so there's no mitigation in other words if you're that close so people are talking about adverse health effects they were worried about this before uh, these wind turbines went up. Have you heard some of these uh, these concerns, and is this something that, that you are involved in at all? I've just read about them in the newspaper. Again, you get to this situation of what do we have in Connecticut for, for energy? We have no gas, no coal, no oil. Uh, we're not New Mexico or Arizona. It takes five acres of solar panels to produce one megawatt of electricity. Uh, and this is the only uh, wind turbine project that Connecticut has. It's in, it's in Colebrook. Now, Pura got involved in that it certified that project for Class 1 power purchase agreement with Eversource. In other words, they can sell their renewable energy credits. Uh, in Connecticut right now, roughly 19, 20, 21 percent of our energy comes from, from renewables. Uh, this project, they have um, they cut the ribbon on October 1st, 2015, for two 2.8 megawatt units, and they are operational in the testing phase. But where to put it comes to the Siting Council. The Siting Council of Connecticut approved the project in a specific location. Uh, After they cut the ribbon in October, right away, there was uh, nearby residents complained of headaches, and they suggested it came from ultrasound, which is sound like a dog whistle. You can't necessarily hear it, but you you know it's there, and it causes causes discomfort. Um, Siting Council has ordered a post-operation noise monitoring, which is now three months old, but I would just note that the Siting Council is not bound by the Connecticut noise uh, control regulations. And so 
what we have is we have not yet scientifically determined if the project is sound compliant. And depending on the test results, there could be a request for mitigation. So if I'm in a town that, and I have these concerns and someone wants to build a wind farm, like who do I turn to? Who's, <laughs> well, who's, who's, the person, who's the person or the agency where I have some ability to, to get some redress here? I would start with the siting council. They decide what goes where. Uh-huh. And uh, they decided that this uh, that this site w- was appropriate to put to put in a wind farm. So that's that, that's the starting point, and, and, and that's the starting point. And, and Pura's role in in all of that is is essentially non-existent up until what point? Well, the they're not going to want to proceed if they can't sell the power they generate mm-hmm. into the system. So part of the in, an integral part of the system is receiving uh, approval from Pura for a Class One power purchase agreement. Uh, there have two. Two two point eight megawatt units, and the the fact that they can sell that electricity to EverSource makes it economically viable for them to proceed. Okay, I, I, and I'm just going to, and we have to take a break in a moment here. Just yep. sort of hypothetically go out on a limb here a little bit. If if, if your agency took a look at a, a project and you had some concerns about the siting for whatever reason, I, it's not in your purview. But I would assume that you would be able to say, well, look, I, I, we don't really think that we're going to get this lo- uh, linked up to the grid because we don't think that this makes the most sense in this place for whatever reason. Is that something that's within the purview of Pura? I just want to understand how, this, how these things get, get done. Just through our membership on the Siting Council, we have, one, we have one membership on the Siting Council. Yes. But that's the forum. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, We're going to take a break, and we have more questions about renewables, but I want to turn to another story here after our break. It's a story that uh, many of you have heard. It's coming out of Flint, Michigan, and we're going to find out what it can tell us about our water supply here in Connecticut. You can join us at 860-275-7266, and this is where we live. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. Coming up tomorrow, one-on-one conversation with the new mayor of Hartford, Luke Bronin. We'll talk about schools and salary increases, ballparks and city budgets, and we'll take some of your calls, your questions for Luke Bronin. That's tomorrow's program. Uh, Right now on a program, we've been talking about our utility system. We're going to turn to Flint, Michigan, where high levels of lead have been discovered in the city's water supply. My eyes are burning in the shower, and I'm like, oh, my goodness, like, what's going on? I get out the shower, and I can't see for a minute because my eyes are burning. Governor Rick Snyder has uh, declared a state of emergency in Flint. Joining us now to talk more about the city's water crisis is Lindsay Smith. Uh, Lindsay's a reporter for Michigan Radio who wrote and produced Not Safe to Drink, a radio documentary about the Flint water crisis. Lindsay, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, John. First of all, give us the latest on the situation in Flint. What exactly is happening there right now? Well, today um, the mayor of Flint is meeting with Governor Rick Snyder about that emergency declaration that you mentioned um, that's uh, the city is looking for um, access to millions of dollars from um, the state, and, and uh, hopefully they would like uh, money from the federal government as well to help um, sort of resolve what they would, what they're calling a, a man-made disaster. These are would be like the same funds if a tornado swept through your town, um, but in this case, it was you know not really a natural disaster. It was something that was um, honestly human error. And the human error is, it's its shocking and it's very sad, but maybe you can explain it to us. What what was the source of this lead contamination? So a couple of things compounded to, to lead to these problems, um, but at its basic level, uh, the 
state's Department of Environmental Quality, our Michigan's environmental regulators, really failed to guide the city of Flint on how to properly treat their drink, drinking water when the city switched from uh, Detroit's water system, which is a, a huge system in Michigan. Uh, plenty of cities get um, drinking water from Detroit, and Flint used to just buy pretty much finished water from Detroit, ready to go, ready to go into people's tap water. When they switched to the Flint River, this was a, a, a money-saving move. Um, they had to treat their own water source, and that proved to be more difficult than they expected. River water is a little harder or trickier to, to treat and to learn how to treat, but they, they got the wrong guidance from the state level on how to properly treat that water. And that has led to this corrosive river water kind of eating away at these old uh, pipes, the infrastructure system, which is pretty common in, in many older cities across the country. It's not uncommon to have lead service lines or um, uh, lead solder when you're connecting the water pipe that brings pipe from the main in front of your house to your house. Um, if a water source is treated properly, the water will coat the inside of those pipes and kind of protect, um, keep those metals, those heavy metals, uh, from getting into people's tap water. But because the, the water wasn't treated properly, it basically ate away at those pipes and got into people's drinking water. So we're talking about old infrastructure, which is something we obviously have here in New England as well, uh, not understanding the technology clearly, something that, that you've just described. But it all starts, uh, Lindsay, from from wanting to save money. I mean, what can you tell us about this, about this switch to this water system that, that turned out so, so hor horrifically wrong? Yeah, this is... Um an interesting case in Michigan, obviously, we've, we were hit pretty hard by the recession. Um, you may know Detroit went through municipal bankruptcy, the largest municipal bankruptcy in U.S. history a couple of years ago. And um, Flint was very close to the same uh, scenario. Uh, we have a law that instead of allowing cities to go directly to bankruptcy, the state appoints an emergency manager to kind of take over cities and school districts that are in danger of heading to bankruptcy court um, in, a, in a way to try to prevent that, right? So the state-appointed emergency manager has powers that elected leaders, local officials, just don't have. They can, like, unilaterally break union contracts. There's been school districts where uh, emergency manager comes in and lays off everybody and, and will hire like a private contractor to run the school district, for example. So in Flint's case, an emergency manager from the state was appointed. Um, there was some back and forth between, you know, the city of Detroit on how much they were charging for water at the time. Flint ultimately decided and the state decided that Flint would switch to this new water system to save money. Well, the new water system isn't built yet. It won't be done until probably this summer. So back in 2013, in the spring, uh, Detroit, it led to a situation where they, they were either, they were stuck between a, hot, a rock and a hard place, really. They had to either keep paying a lot of money to Detroit to buy their water for the two years until the new system was built, or they could go this cheaper route and just get water from the river for just a temporary period, like mm. a two-year period. And that's what the state ultimately decided Flint was going to do. 
Uh, stand by for a second, Lindsay. Art House is here. He's chairman of the Public Utilities Regulatory Authority here in Connecticut. We've been talking about our various utility systems here. When you hear this Art House, I guess the first question I have is, could something like this happen here in the state of Connecticut? Well, I certainly hope not. I mean, the, the lesson I learned is that you should never manage water as an emergency if you can possibly help that. And uh, they got into an emergency up there and uh, turned from the Detroit system to the Flint system. Um, and um, it's caused the problems that Lindsay has just described. I, I would just say, look, three basic points. Water is absolutely vital to life. It's capital intensive, more than gas and electricity. It, it costs a lot of money to process and deliver water, and it has to be safe and widely available. Um, fortunately, Connecticut is a water-rich state, and we have the Water Planning Council to look ahead to avoid these kinds of emergencies. I'd be glad to get into that, but those are the lessons I draw from what Lindsay has just reported on. And, and we just have a couple of minutes, but th- this Water Planning Council is something, this is, we've not really had a, a full-on water plan here in the state, something we've talked about in the past, and this is something that's relatively new, right? That's Yes, it is. Uh, Connecticut, among its great resources, has uh, the Honorable John W. Betkoski III, my vice chairman, who is a national expert on water. Uh, and he chairs the uh, the Water Planning Council. The General Assembly asked them to complete a plan to address issues involving the water company's water resources and the state's drinking supply, uh, and it'll be in, in uh, completed in 2017. And it goes to the General Assembly in 2018. Now, uh, Pura works with the Department of Public Health, OPM, DEEP, and others. And, yes, we're trying to uh, look down the road. Uh, we need a, a competent and publicly supported oversight of the water industry. We have ways of financing it and inspecting it. But Connecticut has a lot of water, and through the Water Planning Council is looking down the road to try to avoid exactly this kind of problem. Uh, Lindsay, in just a, a moment or so, can you tell us if this, aside from all of the things that are happening at the at the governor's level and beyond around mitigating this crisis right now, is this substantially changing the way in which you're looking at water as a resource in Michigan? I think that... This is such an unusual case. Like, you don't see a lot of cities switching water sources altogether like this in this way um, because Flint was sort of doing this because of its dire strait financial situation. Um, You know, I think we're looking at how the state handles those emergency manager situations, Mm. um, the cost-cutting side, and, and how we test the water for lead is another way. Um, but I, I think it's kind of an unusual case. So, yes, certainly we're looking at it and looking at other cities. But, you know, you should also know that not every city is, you know, looking to save money in this drastic way. Uh, Lindsay Smith's a reporter for Michigan Radio. She wrote and produced Not Safe to Drink. It's a radio documentary about the Flint water crisis. It's great reporting, and we're uh, tweeting out links right now at Where We Live. You can also find it on our Facebook page. Um, Lindsay, thank you so much for your work. I really appreciate it. No, thanks for having me. I want to quickly go to Valerie, who's calling from Bloomfield. Hi, Valerie. Go ahead. Hi. Yes, I'm concerned uh, as a citizen of Bloomfield with who's overseeing the MDC decisions about uh, selling water to private uh, for-profit water bottling companies. We have a situation developing in our town where we've been assured that there is no, um, there will never be a difficulty with um, our, our public water supply for drinking but up to close to 2 million gallons a day could be getting pumped through MDC Reservoir 6 to go to Niagara water bottling. And uh, I don't know whether this water planning agency will be looking at decisions such as this. 
because uh, water is a resource, and a lot of citizens are becoming concerned about uh, who's making decisions, especially especially in regard to this kind of concept of privatizing water supply for profit to an out-of-state company. Well, Valerie, thank you very much for the question. And I, I'm wondering if you, how much of, of that you can comment on Art, Art House, but this is, a, this is something we've certainly heard before, and Valerie's concern, very valid. Well, as I understand, uh, and I'm not a specialist, but I understand the Arkhamsted Reservoir releases about 500 million gallons of water per day, uh, the demand from this Bloomfield plant would be about $2 million. So that's the nature of, of what we're talking about in terms of resources. But any concern can go to the Water Planning Council. Um, Pura, as an agency, does not oversee municipal and regional water authorities. We, do not have, we have no authority whatsoever over the MDC. But uh, I, would, I would certainly welcome uh, anything sent to the Water Planning Council to be brought to their attention. We didn't get a chance to talk about an, an awful lot of things, including uh, nuclear power in the state. We have just a, a, about a minute or, or so right now. You were saying off the air, you know, the amount of energy that's generated by our nuclear facility versus some of the renewables that we have here in the state. Um, you know, we're not backing off of nuclear power here in, in Connecticut anytime soon. We're not building anything new. The governor's... Cheaner, cleaper, sorry. Cleaner and cheaper. Cleaner, cheaper, more reliable. Everyone's in favor of that. We all want more renewable. We want more sun. We want, want more, more wind. Um, but just look at the controversies we had in Colebrook. Uh, we have two large uh, solar farms in East Lyman and, and in Summers. They, they, each of those produce about 5 megawatts. So between Colebrook, Summers, Enfield, we have 16 megawatts. Right down the road from that, Millstone puts out 2,000 megawatts a day. And it's clean. And the question is, while we go for renewables, we want Pratt and Whitney to work at night when there's no sun. We need a base load. And we we have to recognize that here's a large load which does not pollute the air right here in Connecticut. And maybe we have you back sometime soon and just spend a lot of time talking about how we uh, ramp up some renewals, renewables in the state. But Art House, uh, chairman of the Public Utilities Regulatory Authority, thank you so much for coming in once again, sir. Always good to be with you, John. I'm John Dankosky. This is where we live.